religion, recreation, things to do for fun. We have more freedom to choose than anyone ever before in history. And with that, it also happens to be the most confusing time. I don't think it's a coincidence. The amount of just ideas and uh, uh, life philosophies that are out there, it's crazy. It's crazy how many different things people think about what's the meaning of life, uh, who's God, is there a God. And I've noticed even within Christianity, there's really no difference in that. More than ever, we've got more options on what kind of songs we want to sing, what kind of preaching we want to hear. You don't have that option today. But in general, <laughs> what kind of preaching we want to hear, what denomination we want to be a part of, big church, small church, whatever we want, we get to choose. And there's so many of these different ideas kind of floating around, these Christian viewpoints, that it can be overwhelming. And I find it uh, to be confusing sometimes. But thankfully, and God's word will do this, but uh, the text that we've come to this morning, uh, it's Genesis 15, by the way, if you want to just start opening there. But today's text is going to add some clarity to that confusion. As we've been working through the book of Genesis, uh, the text we've come to this morning, um, it helps us out because it's so easy to be distracted by pretty much everything in life, whether it's different ideas, not being sure what Christianity is really about, or if we're just being distracted by totally different things, uh, like our jobs, uh, families. So this morning, I've been just praying for a reminder for all of us uh, that we'd be refreshed in remembering what this is all about. Uh, you've probably heard of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's this uh, big building, and it is leaning quite a bit on its side. And uh, I learned that when they were building that, they actually knew while they were building it, the foundation was off. They laid the foundation, and they knew it wasn't totally right. But what they did, they just kept building, kept adding layers onto it, and they tried to compensate in the upper layers for the foundation, which was totally off. As you know, that didn't go so well for them. And so I don't want us as Christians to be uh, like those architects who know the foundation is off. Maybe we're just confused about what the foundation is for the Christian life. We're going to get this morning just really to the core of this whole Christianity thing. Uh, yeah. So if you're in Genesis 15, um, we're going to start in verse 1. And the thing I love about Genesis is just the fact that even from the beginning, this is thousands and thousands of years before Jesus came to earth. And even then, we see that God, he's the same in Genesis. He's the same God of Abraham as he is to us now. God's plan has been the same all through history uh, to bring us into his family. Um, yeah, so this morning, no matter how long you've known Jesus, whether it's six months, maybe you've been a Christian six months, maybe you've been a Christian 80 years, maybe you've never heard of Jesus before, it's going to be a bit of a back-to-the-basics sermon. Uh, the wonderful thing with God, though, is that even the basics are usually, and in this case, it is the most powerful thing. Um, yeah, so we're going to get into it. Just before this, a little bit of background context. So if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Kyle, Pastor Kyle's sermon on Abram. He won in this war against a bunch of kings. He was visited by this mysterious priest guy, Melchizedek. Uh, he blesses Abraham. The king of Sodom offers to give Abraham all the plunder for battle, but Abram refuses, doesn't take it. And so then we get to our text for this morning. After this, after all this stuff happened, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. I'm going to do a little side note here already. Uh, visions back then, they were one of the primary methods that God used 
to communicate what he wanted to say to humanity. Now, a lot of people, uh, this has gone through my mind a lot, maybe it's going through your mind, is why doesn't God usually do this anymore? Like, why don't we get an audible voice coming down from heaven, God telling us what to do, or God giving us a vision or a dream that's like, Jude, tomorrow you have to go do this. You have to take this job. You have to move to this town. He doesn't normally do that. A lot of people wonder why. And there's some exceptions. Like, we hear crazy stories uh, in the Middle East, like uh, in Muslim countries, God gives visions to people of Jesus, and through that, they come to seek out Jesus, because otherwise, they would just have no idea they were even supposed to seek out Jesus. But for the most part, the reason God doesn't give us visions anymore is because we have his completed word right here, the Bible, everything he wants to say to us in the Bible, which we call the word of God for a reason, because it contains God's words to us. And again, that's a general statement. Uh, maybe you've had a vision. God still works in our hearts to direct us and tell us things. But if he does, you ought to make sure it lines up with what we know for certain that he said in the Bible. Anyway, that's a side note. Um, I had a pastor growing up who always said, if you want to hear what God has to say to you, read the Bible. And if you would rather hear an audible voice, then read it out loud. So I'm going to do that. Do not be afraid. This is God saying to Abram, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. If you remember back to chapter 12 of Genesis, that was quite a few weeks ago, God made a promise to Abram. He said, I'll make you into a great nation. The thing is, it's difficult to have a nation descend from you if you don't have any kids. It poses a bit of a problem for that. Abram and Sarai, they were coming up on about 100 years old. They didn't have any kids. And this Eliza guy, he's happy because he's going to get all of Abram's money. What happened back then is if you didn't have a kid uh, to pass on all your wealth to, when you died, you could adopt a servant if you had a servant. You could legally adopt someone if you liked them, you trusted them, said, hey, I'm going to give you the legal rights of being my son so that when I die, you get everything. Uh, my family name continues through you. Abraham was resorting to this. He was confused. He knew that God was trustworthy. God promised he was going to have a nation come from him, but he just couldn't figure out, is this what God meant by it? Kind of anticlimactic. He got his hopes up for nothing. But then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So Abram counted 23, 2 times 10 to the power of 23, counted that many stars. And God said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God's adding clarity to this promise. Abram's son was going to be biological. He wouldn't have to resort to passing on his wealth to someone that was unrelated to him. It would be a biological son. And we're going to continue learning just about this plot line uh, throughout uh, the rest of the book of Genesis. But this last verse here is going to be our main focus. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. In a way, this statement is the climax of Abram's life. 
uh, it's the one verse that really gives definition to his relationship with God. I want us, to, I want to challenge us to ask this question this morning, uh, as we come into God's Word. How do we define our relationship with God? If someone would come up to you and ask, "Hey, how can you really be sure that you know God? How can you really be sure that you have a relationship with God? How can you know that He accepts you?" What's your answer? What's your answer going to be? There's a lot of different answers people give. Uh, for many, it's that they grew up Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. I've always known the Bible. I know about God. So therefore, I'm on good terms with God automatically. But is that true? For others, it's that they've lived in a way that lines up with what the Bible tells them to do. They've lived really closely to how God wants them to live. And so for them, they say, therefore, that means they're living in a right relationship with God. But is that true? Thankfully, this morning, uh, God's Word is not going to leave us with that question to figure out answers for ourselves. There might be some uncertainty in your heart this morning on if you do know God. If you have come to this point of understanding what this is all about, understanding what the basis is for us knowing God, God's Word will speak to that this morning. What are God's conditions? What does He require of us to have a relationship with Him? And how can we meet those requirements? We're going to explore this statement this morning, this concept of righteousness. God credits Abram's faith to him as righteousness. Before anything else, I want to just give us some clarity on this word, righteousness. Like, what does it mean? Uh, It might sound like this fancy Bible word to you, a word that we just use at church and nowhere else. You don't hear it too often in conversations. Uh, It's kind of a word, maybe a picture of these old theologians stroking their beards, talking about righteousness. But it's all over the Bible, and so we're going to seek to understand it this morning. The best definition that I've come across for righteousness is having a right relationship with God, to be right in God's eyes. See, one of God's attributes, one thing that's true about him, is that he's righteous. And so, therefore, for us to be righteous is to live according to what God lays out as right and wrong do the right thing in every situation as God defines right, not as we think is right, not as we figure out for ourselves, but as God defines what is right. And so knowing what righteousness is, it goes without saying that it's important and that we need it. Whether we're old or young, whether we've grew up religious or not, whether we've gone to church since we were zero years old or we've never been to church before, we need to have a right relationship with God. This is the point of Christianity. This is the foundation know God personally, to love him, to be loved by him. But why can't we just do that anyway? I've asked this question a lot as I was growing up. I wondered this. Why can't we just do this anyway? What's the issue? What's the barrier? Like we hear about God's love, we hear about God's forgiveness all the time. And if God loves us and he's forgiving, why doesn't he just do that? Why does this have to be so complicated? Why can't he just like ignore the bad parts about us focus on the good, because obviously there's more good than bad. False. Why can't he just do that? Why doesn't he just forgive us, sweep our mess up, sweep our sin under the carpet, and forget about it? But when we talk about God and his attributes, things that are true about him, what we need to realize is that whatever is true about God is true to an infinite extent. It's not just really true, it's infinitely true. So for example, When we say God is love, that doesn't just mean that he loves us and he's usually okay with us and 
maybe if we offend him, he'll stop loving us for a week, but then come back. It's not what it means. It means he loves us infinitely. There's no limits to his love. When we say it, God is powerful, it's not just that he's twice as strong as us. He's not very strong. It's that he is infinite, total control over the universe that he created. And so, when we talk about righteousness, this attribute, this thing about God, that he's righteous, it's not just in this general sense that God usually does the right thing, that he likes to make people happy, that he's nice. It means that God is absolutely right in everything he does all the time, to the extent, even, the Bible says, even to be in God's presence, someone has to be absolutely righteous. He's so righteous, so pure, evil can't even be in the same place as God is. I like to think of this kind of like storm clouds. So if there's sun, when there's a storm, the sun is still there, but there's these big, massive storm clouds blocking it, so you can't see past them. They're blocking the sun from us, and that's what sin does. We can't see God. We're disconnected from him because of the ways that we reject him every day, the ways we don't live righteously, like storm clouds between God and us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the New Testament, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is tough. I can't do that. But that's what God requires of us. We need to be as perfect as God is. If we're going to have a right relationship with him to be righteous, if we're going to live with him in his presence forever, that's what we call heaven. God's righteousness requires that we also have to be just as righteous, just as perfect. There's a problem with that because from the beginning of humanity with Adam and Eve, we've been in the business of doing the exact opposite of what God's commanded of us. The Bible calls it a sinful nature. So naturally, who we naturally are, our natural selves are rebellious against God. We naturally want to do the opposite of what God says. We naturally want to make the world revolve around us. We naturally want to seek after pleasure rather than seeking after God's will. We're really good at doing that. It helped me understand this when I was told uh, to look at like a little kid. Just look at a little kid, and if you've been a parent, you'll know that you don't need to teach your kid how to lie. Okay? They already know that. They figure it out. They lie all by themselves. And if you're parenting, you don't need to teach your kid that the world revolves around them. They already think that. All right? The funny thing, when we grow up, become adults, we still think that. It doesn't change. We're just better at hiding it in front of people. We're more like politically, socially correct about it. But we still think the world revolves around us. Um, when I'm in a conversation with someone, for example, you none of you probably do this, but I do this all the time. When the person's talking, generally, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. How can I sound smart when I respond to what they're saying? That's what I do. Because obviously what I have to say is by far more important than what anyone else has to say. All right, that's what we think. When something doesn't go our way, we get frustrated. Because deep down, we think the world needs to revolve around us. We'd all probably agree with the truth that the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians. That we are created for Jesus. Everything was created for Jesus. The universe revolves around him not around us. We believe that, but we rarely act like it. We rarely act like we're not the center. And so naturally, it's impossibly hard to achieve the righteousness of God. We're impossibly far off from what God requires of us to be in his presence, uh, requires to know him personally, have a relationship with him. Nowadays, we even 
when we say, like, someone's only human, it's like an excuse for doing something wrong. If I mess up, I'll say, oh, it's okay, don't worry, I'm only human. Which, there's a point to that, because human basically means the same thing as messed up, flawed. Paul lays it out in the book of Romans, in case there's any doubt in our minds. Uh, Romans 8, verse 8, he says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So in other words, uh, naturally, the realm of the flesh, naturally, who we are as humans, we're incapable of living up to God's righteousness. Now, either one of two things has to happen. Either one, God rejects all of us, or two, somehow, this righteousness that we need has to come from somewhere outside of ourselves. So the question now becomes, how do we get it? How do we get this righteousness? And that's a good question. It's the question really every major religion in the world tries to answer. How can we make God happy with us? People have tried to be right with God all kinds of ways, whether it's meditating to the point where we just elevate our minds like above physical things in order to become purely spiritual so that we're not even tempted anymore. That doesn't work. Uh, whether it's a rigid set of rules that we put in place to help us avoid God's anger and just hope that we never overstep once. Maybe you've lived your whole life trying to find ways to make God happy with you. You go to church as much as you can. You read your Bible. You do your best to raise your kids and love your family. You don't swear. You don't break the law, except when it comes to how fast you can drive. But if you're like me, what you notice when you do your best at all those things is that you don't feel any closer to God than you did before. No matter how hard you try, you just can't do it. The Sermon on the Mount. This is the thing about the New Testament. In a lot of people's minds, the Old Testament is rigid rules. God is all about rules and holiness and righteousness. And then in the New Testament, he kind of relaxes on his rules a bit. It's easier. We don't have to follow them. God's more forgiving. It's false. God is the same in the Old and New Testament. And it's shown in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon Jesus preaches. He makes it even harder to live according to God's will. He says that before in the law, it said, do not murder. Thou shalt not murder. It's pretty easy for me. I'm not sitting in a life group saying, guys, I've just been struggling with murder this week. Um, I don't do that. It's fairly easy for me to avoid murdering people. Just don't stab. But Jesus came along, and he said, hey, if you're angry at someone, if you're holding resentment against someone, you've murdered that person in your heart. See, now he's not just taking our outward actions into account. He's taking our thoughts, our attitudes. All of this is taken into account with the righteousness that God requires. And we're far off. It's not going to come from me. It's not going to come by me just clenching my fists, trying really hard, waking up in the morning, saying, all right, today is going to be perfect. It doesn't happen. My attitude's just terrible. What does God say? How can we have a right relationship with him? What are we supposed to do to get this righteousness? If it's not from ourselves, if we can't clench our fists and make ourselves good enough to be accepted by God, where are we going to get the righteousness we need? It's in our passage for today. Verse 6 of Genesis 15. Again, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. For this one verse, of all the verses in the Old Testament, this is one of the verses that's quoted the most times in the New Testament. Because it flies in the face of the way that we think. Especially in North America, where everything's about like working 
working your way to the top, being the best you can, being independent, doing it yourself. That's all kind of way we live in our culture, in our world. But Abram didn't do that. Abram, he didn't work his way to a moral summit. He didn't just keep being better and better and better until finally God said, all right, you've achieved enough. Now I accept you. Now you're righteous. No, that didn't happen. We've seen in a lot of Pastor Kyle's sermons in the last few weeks, Abram had a lot of shortcomings. He had a lot of doubts, a lot of character issues. But Abram believes the Lord. He believes the one true God and his promise. Because of his faith, God considers Abram righteous. How is that fair? How does that work? It's not fair. He just gets it for free. We just said that God requires us to be absolutely righteous to be accepted by him. And now Abram comes, he has faith in God, and God credits it to him as righteousness. It's like if you saved up for a car for years and years and years, you're saving up thousands and thousands of dollars, and the day comes, you have all the money you need. You go to the car dealership, and you find out they're giving away these cars for free. Everyone's just coming and getting them after all the work you've done saving up, and now you realize you just wasted all your years of time. People who didn't work for it can now have it. Righteousness is counted to Abram. There's so many people who try to work for it, who try to save up, not save up, but they try to achieve righteousness. They try to live perfectly the way that God wants them to, hoping they'll be accepted by God. But Abram believes the Lord, and God counts that to him as righteousness. It's applied to him because of his faith. Now, uh, if you've ever wondered if there's one Bible verse that kind of sums up all of Christianity, everything we need to know, there's not one specifically, but there's one that gets close. So uh, if you've got a Bible, I think it's worth turning to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to spend some time here on verse 21. In Genesis, we read about this thing where Abram receives righteousness because of his belief, but it's not until the New Testament that we actually find out exactly where that righteousness is coming from. So if you're there, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's three key parts to that verse. First, Jesus had no sin. He never once lived in rebellion against God. He never once turned his back on God. He never once did what God was displeased with, things we do every single day. He earned heaven. Jesus actually earned heaven. He deserved the acceptance of God because he was perfect. Second thing is that we do have sin, but Jesus took it from us. We have sin, but Jesus took it from us. This is the key because, like we said, God's righteousness, God is righteous. Sin can't even be near him. Right? Sin can't be in his presence. There's the storm clouds. We can't get near him. But Jesus took away those storm clouds. He took away the sin that presented a barrier between us and God. Third thing, the righteousness Jesus lived out, he gives that righteousness to us. That's where the righteousness comes from. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was absolutely perfect. He lived in a way that pleased God 24-7 every day of his life. And that righteousness is applied to us through faith. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is something we call the great exchange, where Jesus takes our sin, 
we take his righteousness. It's not a fair exchange. Thank God that it's not fair, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Just think about it, how much we don't like this in our culture. All right, we love to work for things. We love to just sit back after a day of work or after we buy a new car and think, yeah, I earned that. Feels great because I did that. I did all the work. It only had to do with me. This whole concept flies in the face of the way that we think. Now, there's this statement that I'm just going to, it's kind of a little aside, navigate through a little bit. Uh, and it's actually said a lot in the church, not just this church, but Christianity in general. Uh, people say this a lot. God accepts me just the way I am. Probably heard that. In one sense, that's true. God didn't require Abram to reach this certain level of his own righteousness that he worked for and then say, all right, Abram, you've made it 50%. I'll match your funds. You get the rest of the 50% for free. It's not what works. The moment Abram believed, he received total righteousness from God. Too many people, a lot of us, we hesitate to give our life to Jesus. We hesitate to fully have faith in Jesus, to live our life for him, because we don't think we're good enough. We don't think we're good enough for God. And that's true. None of us are good enough. You might have heard the verse in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We all fail. None of us deserve God's acceptance. But we rarely read the verse that comes right after that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word justified, it brings kind of pictures of a courtroom to mind. The defendant stands up and the jury comes and says, we find the defendant not guilty. And that's what happens to us. Our verdict in God's courtroom is not guilty. See, we are guilty. We're guilty every day of rejecting him, living not according to the way that he wants us to. But our verdict is not guilty if we receive his gift of righteousness. And so how do we receive it? By faith. The issue with that statement, God accepts me just the way I am, is that God doesn't accept us for who we are. He accepts us for who Jesus is. God accepts us if we have received the gift of righteousness because, receives us because of the righteousness of Jesus, of the absolute perfection with which he earned God's favor while he lived on earth. And that's what God sees when he looks at us. If we've accepted the righteousness of Jesus, it gets credited to us. So when we're standing in court in that metaphor, the jury looks. They don't see any wrongdoing. They only see the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection, and our verdict is not guilty. It's hard for me to come to grips with this fact that God accepts me for literally nothing to do with me. I want to earn it, but the news of the gospel is that Jesus earned it for me, and he died to give it to me. God plans this all through the Old Testament. So we read of Abram. We read here, righteousness credited to him by faith. Then we read later, when there's the nation of Israel, God gives them the law. And the law, it's all these rules, hundreds and hundreds of rules that God's people are required to follow. And they don't. We don't. And then in the book of Romans, later, we find out that the main reason that God gave us the law was actually to show us that we can't, that we suck at living up to God's requirements. And we need righteousness to come from somewhere else if we're ever going to be accepted by God. And then later, in the prophets, uh, there's this guy named Isaiah, uh, and he's prophesying from God. God's giving him a message to his people that there's going to be someone who comes one day 
he says, this guy, this man will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His punishment will bring us peace, and his wounds will heal us. And then 700 years later, that man shows up. His name was Jesus, and through his life, he lived 100% righteously. He earned heaven. He achieved the total righteousness that God requires, and then he died. And through his death, through his resurrection, we can get that righteousness. He took our sin. We can take his righteousness. That's what he made available to us. That's why he had to die. His death was the punishment for our sin, and he took that punishment. Uh, like Second Corinthians is clear about, Jesus had no sin. He took our sin for us. In exchange, we get his righteousness. This is the key to the gospel. God, a lot of us think God looks at our determination. Like, even if we don't live up, as long as we're trying as hard as we can, then that's all we can do. God has to be happy with us because it wouldn't be fair if he didn't. But that's just not right. That's not what we find in the Bible. The only way he can accept us is if he looks at us and sees total perfection that only Jesus can provide by faith and trusting in Jesus, trusting that he's our only hope. Like we've said, sin sin can't be in heaven. The wrongdoings that we have, the ways we rebel against God, we can't take that to heaven with us. We needed it taken away. We needed the storm clouds taken away. Jesus took them away. Now, uh, the one kind of last thing that I want us to look at this morning, uh, with all this talk of faith and believing and trusting, it's easy to kind of get this mixed up idea in our minds of what is faith. We talked about uh, right at the start of how there's just all kinds of ideas floating around. What is faith? Is it believing that God's real? Is that faith? Is that what God requires of us? Thankfully for us, though, our passage this morning, it helps us out with that. Uh, it doesn't leave us confused. Uh, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Kyle talk about the term Lord. Uh, it's in the chapter before, Lord. So in your Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, this happens. Sometimes you see Lord, it's spelled capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And when it's that, it's just talking about like a title, a general sense of Lord, this general concept of God that people had. It could be whatever they wanted to, whatever they wanted God to be like. It's funny, even here in Princeton, you meet all kinds of people who have all kinds of ideas, all kinds of ideas about God. But then as soon as you ask them, okay, who is God? You say you believe in God. Who is he? What's he like? You get all kinds of answers, all kinds of answers that have nothing to do with the God that we find in the Bible. But when you see Lord spelled all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's God's personal name in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. It's a name that the Israelites were afraid to even say out loud because it was God's personal name. It's used to be specific. This is the God we're talking about. We're not just talking about the concept of God. This is not the force in Star Wars. It's not whoever we want God to be. This is the God of the Bible. He's told us in the Bible who he is, what he's like. That's the God Abram had faith in. He's revealed us. He's revealed himself to us. If I, for example, if I would ask Pastor Kyle if he's seen Star Wars, he says, yes, he's seen Star Wars. And I'm like, awesome, me too. It's my favorite movie. What's your favorite episode? And Kyle starts talking about the Enterprise, the spaceship, Captain Kirk, Spock. I get a little worried. I start to think, Kyle, 
I think we might have different ideas of Star Wars. That's just an example. That would never happen. But the point is, God's defined who he is. And if the God that we believe in doesn't line up with the God that we find in the Bible, then we've got the wrong God. If the God in our mind doesn't require us to be righteous, then we've got the wrong God. I was reminded this week of the opening of the book of Hebrews. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the, these are the visions that we're talking about. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So in the time of Abram, he received the word of the Lord, like we read. He had faith in the word of the Lord, all caps. This is God as he defines himself. And he had righteousness credited to him because of that faith. But now we've received Jesus. If we've received Jesus, the Son of God, God's ultimate word. He's everything God wants to tell us in a person. That's Jesus. And if we have faith in him, we'll have righteousness credited to us. The Bible even calls Jesus the word of God. In John chapter 1, as he's introducing the life of Jesus, he gives a little pre-intro. The very first of the whole book of John, first verse says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came to earth. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word, the ultimate word, everything God wanted to communicate to us through Jesus, Abraham had faith in the word of the Lord. Now God sent his ultimate word. We have faith in him that he rose from the dead. After dying for our sins, we have righteousness counted to us through faith in the word of God, in Jesus. And this is through relying not on how good we can be, not on living how Jesus wants to, and then we'll get righteousness. It's faith in him alone. This is where I used to base, when I was growing up, my relationship with God, which I didn't have a relationship with God uh, back then and through my teenage years. But if you had asked teenager Jude, Jude, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're accepted by God? You would have heard, well, uh, my family's Christian, so it's kind of a given that I'm going to heaven. Um, and I go to church all the time, and I've memorized Bible verses, and I don't do anything terrible. I don't murder people. Never stabbed anyone. And deep inside, I believed I could be the kind of person that God would accept. And I hadn't received the righteousness of Jesus because I didn't think I needed it. And maybe that's you. You don't think you need Jesus' righteousness because you think you can be the kind of person that God can accept. The Bible's clear. We can't. God needs us to be perfect. Every attitude, every thought, every action and word is taken into account, and we all fail miserably at that test. Uh, the Apostle Paul, I came across the book of Philippians after I became a Christian, and the Apostle Paul actually was kind of like that. So he starts listing all his credentials. He says, I was born to the right family. I was super religious. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous for God. He, he was really sincere about what he believed. He was living his whole life in a way that he thought he could be accepted for. He thought he would earn God's favor and his acceptance. But then he writes, all those things I used to trust in, 
they were garbage. Now I see they were useless. They didn't get me any closer to God. They actually got me farther away from God because I didn't think I needed righteousness from anywhere else. I thought I could get it myself. He had to come to a total reliance on the righteousness that Jesus provides. See, the definition of faith in the Bible is really all or nothing. Either you're trusting completely in Jesus for who he is, or you're not trusting him at all. There's this phrase uh, that Jesus says a few times, and it used to really confuse me. Uh, He says, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away. Either you have it or you don't. That's what Jesus is saying. Either we know Jesus for who he truly is, as both Savior and Lord, that's who he is. He has the right to tell us how to live. But if we start picking the parts of Jesus that we like and inventing a Jesus in our mind that's maybe only half of who Jesus really is, then we think we have half. We don't have any of him. Either we're trusting only in Jesus, and this is what the verse is about, either we're trusting only in Jesus for his righteousness, or we're trusting in ourselves and our ability to earn it, to earn a relationship with God, but we can't have both. It's all or nothing. If we trust in Jesus and think it has to do with him, but also we kind of have to live right first. Uh, We have to make sure we're good enough before we become a Christian. That's false. There's this ad from a while back uh, with these two big Volvo semi-trucks and an actor who was anonymous to me. Turns out he's famous. Jean-Claude Van Damme is his name. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently I'm really young. But I only learned that he's famous. But he's standing with one foot on each of these Volvo trucks, and they're actually driving backwards. And then they start kind of diverging a little bit. They start getting farther and farther apart, and he's doing the splits between those two Volvos. And I was thinking about that ad this week and how you could say one of those trucks, that's Jesus. That's trusting in him, his righteousness, his total perfection. The other truck we've got are our hard work, our determination to please God, how good we can be, how we can live up to how he wants us to be, and we can choose one or the other. But a lot of us, what we do, we try to stand with one foot on each of those trucks. We say, I believe in Jesus. I need to keep being good in order to be a Christian. I need to make sure I'm good enough for God to accept me. We try to do both of those at the same time, and it doesn't work. If you're flexible like me, you could probably last a little bit longer doing the splits. But Eventually, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. We have to choose one. We're people who like to feel good about ourselves. I think we can all agree with that. We like to feel good about ourselves. We like to feel accomplished. So it's hard to come to grips. It has nothing to do with us. Even if part of us believes that God's happy with us because of how good we are, it's possible that we don't trust Jesus at all. Real faith is all or nothing. This comes out in Galatians. Uh, the book of Galatians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about Abraham. He says about Abraham, so I ask again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law, by doing good things, or by believing what you heard? In other words, do we live in a relationship with God and experience his abundant life because we're good enough or because we believe that the righteousness of Christ is the only way? So also Abraham, 
believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, Gentiles being anyone who's not in God's family, anyone who does not have a relationship with God. God would justify those people one day by faith. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed by you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The passage goes on to say, all those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Everyone who trusts themselves, everyone who thinks they can be good enough, is under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. So if we're going to choose to make it about ourselves, to be good enough, we're held to every little bit of the law, every thought, every action, and we can't do that. It's difficult to live with both feet on the right truck, both feet on the righteousness of Christ. Uh, So as we go through this week, let's be aware of what goes through our mind. I find what I believe most often kind of comes out in what I think the way that I view circumstances. Uh, For example, the way that I like to subconsciously give myself a little bit of credit for my Christian life. Like if someone comes and compliments me, imagine someone comes and compliments you. They say, wow, you are just an amazing Christian. I wish I could be as close to God as you are. Just love the way that you serve God. For me, my ego normally gets the best of me. And even if I don't say it, I think, you know, you're right. I am pretty awesome. And I'd encourage you to, yeah, just be aware of our thoughts. This uh, this passage is very theological. Uh, there's a lot of ideas flowing flowing through this, a lot of truth. Um, and yeah, I just I'm gonna pray in a little bit that God will help us to understand this and apply it to our thoughts and the way that we go about our lives, the way that we talk to people. I had a pastor. Sorry, this was my pastor. Uh, growing up before I came here, and he had this thing that he said. He'd say it most sermons. He always said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. This good news that the righteousness we need comes from Jesus, not from us, preach that to yourself, all right? You're all going to be preaching, hopefully, this week. Not up here, most likely, but to yourself. Remind yourself, whether it's through reading the Bible and prayer and talking to people, and just running through in your mind, wow, I'm not good enough. God accepts me anyway because of Jesus, because of his righteousness. I don't have to be good enough. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. It's like the Leaning Tower of Pisa that we talked about. This is the foundation. If the foundation's wrong, if we forget that it has nothing to do with us, if we forget that we got righteousness as a gift, then the tower we're building, the life that we're living, will start to lean, it'll start to come off balance and eventually crash down if we don't get our foundation right. We don't remember the gospel. If you're hearing this for the first time, or maybe you've been hearing about Jesus your whole life, but you're holding back from accepting him, whether it's because you don't think you're good enough for God, none of us are. So I'd encourage you to take that step, to trust the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the only way have a relationship with God, 
he went to great lengths to make that righteousness available for us. He died, rose again. The Bible says, whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. It's total righteousness. It's available if we choose to accept it. So I'm going to pray to that end. We're going to get the worship team up here and sing our way out. Lord Jesus, uh, we come with thankful hearts um, and humble hearts. God, we acknowledge that uh, you're holy, you're perfect and righteous, and we're so far from that. But this righteousness that you've required, you gave to us anyway. Lord, we thank you for the cross where Jesus died and opened up the way for us to know you, cleared away uh, these storm clouds so that we can have a relationship with you uh, that carries on from now to eternity. Lord, would you be worshipped and glorified uh, these next minutes as we sing and worshipped and glorified um, in this next week as we live, as we talk to people and live out the amazing truth that we find in your word. Lord, we love you and thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.